Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Leo Marani. He's the news editor of The Economist, based in London. He's worked there since 2015. He also has been a technology reporter for Quartz Business News site. He talks about his extended working visit to America and his story and study of small towns and small cities. Leo, you're visiting the United States uh, from London. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've been here how long? Uh, 66 days, not that I'm counting or anything. (laughs) It's a total of... 75 day a total of 75 days on the road wandering all around this wonderful surprising endlessly fascinating country of yours how long have you uh, is this first time you've been here or you've been here many times before i've been here a few times i wouldn't say many uh largely i've been in big coastal cities new york dc la i spent a few days reporting in florida and i spent a week this is the extent of my sort of experiences outside uh, big cities. I spent a week wandering around eastern Texas with a friend of mine a couple of years ago, and that was great fun. Texas is, <laughs> It's an interesting place, isn't it? It certainly is. Texas is, amongst other things, I can now say this with some authority, having spent a little bit of time sampling barbecue in the American South. Uh, amongst other things, Texas is, I think... Um, Home to the best barbecue in the United States. Oh, you just offended all the people in North Carolina <laughs> <laughs> and all the other places. I don't uh, get this ketchup-based barbecue sauce. It just does not do it for me. Uh, I'm sorry. So you're more a vinegar man, right? I prefer the vinegar, yes. <laughs> uh, this time that you've been going, uh, I know these trips, you sort of have a theme or something mm-hmm. that you're researching. What, what are you researching So there's a very broad interest that I have, and then there's a very specific theme that I'm researching. I'll tell you both. The broad interest is um, America outside the big cities, which is different uh, from small-town America. And this broad interest uh, is, I mean, it's I say America outside the big cities, but frankly, it's about life outside big cities in general. I grew up in Bombay in India, city of about 20-odd million, yeah. give or take a couple of million. Um, I have lived for nearly a decade in London, big world city. Uh, when I go on holidays or reporting, I tend to go to other cities. Um, I'm the sort of 
person who you know flies in and out of big airport hubs and spends time in those places and leaves goes back and so i freely admit that i've never really engaged with or understood smaller places or what drives them um what they like to live in and so on and so the this was the broad interest was to sort of try and gain an understanding of that by spending a lot of time in those places so on this trip i have not spent huge amounts of time in big cities i was in la for like 2 days um seattle for 3 that sort of thing instead of spent a lot of time in towns and cities of a million people or under way under actually um <clears throat> so that's my broad interest and it's i've learned quite a lot from that i feel like i ha- it has helped me better understand what i do and the perspective i bring in my journalism and how i can be more nuanced about these things it's helped me better understand um the media environment it's helped me better understand even something as quotidian as you, you i'm sure you've been to these cafes and bars the ones that have tungsten lighting and exposed <laughs> brick you know they're all over the place and when you live in when you live in london when you live in new york you complain about this just like everything's the same what i've realized and this is just one example of of why right. this has opened my eyes what i've realized is in smaller towns and smaller cities places like that fulfill a number of important functions first they signal membership of the world outside wherever it is you are um it's sort of like a piece of san francisco or copenhagen in you're your little so town you're not so backward you're, exactly you're, it's, it's you know we're a metropolitan or at least cosmopolitan sort of place so that's one important function they fulfill a second is as a meeting ground um people from other countries or the cities when they younger people people who like this sort of stuff when they go to these places they'll go they'll gravitate naturally towards these sort of cafes and bars and so it becomes a place for locals to meet travelers and vice versa and third and i think most important it these sort of places perform an economic function whereby you know you look across the west and outside the big big cities there's a gaping hole where working age people should be you know kids grow up they go to university they never come back or they come back when they retire and for a lot of smaller places that's a problem i'm not talking about rural communities uh but for smaller Small towns small towns um that's a problem and so one way to keep those people there is to provide attractive jobs yes but another way to keep people there is to provide them things to do with their spare time provide them ways to spend their money uh provide them lifestyle which is what uh younger working age people are interested in today rather than acquiring possessions and so these places which aren't sort of put up by the government or the local authorities they're put up by private entrepreneurs um they provide that for younger people so that that's just one example of the sort of in a way quite mundane but in a way quite profound um things i've learned sort of stepping outside my bubble of large cities around the world You were talking about it's it's changed your media perspective and uh, made it more nuanced. How, how so? So this was actually in reaction to a sort of slightly smug metropolitan tweet that I saw. <laughs> uh, as you know, over the past two years, there's been a lot of reporting by big city journalists going to some diner in. the middle of nowhere and trying to gauge the sort of um 
gauge the take the pulse of real America. And can I just say, I have a problem with this idea of the real America, the real anything. Uh, it's always bugged me. As somebody from Bombay, people would show up in India and say, yeah, okay, Bombay is fine, but I want to see the real India. <laughs> and, you know, are you telling me I'm not a real Indian? Um, so equally, I think a New, New York is as much the real America as is Montgomery, Alabama. But anyway, so there's been all these pieces um, by these people doing these things. And someone on Twitter suggested that, you know, they'd like to see what um, what rural America gets wrong about urban America instead of just stories the other way around. And I think that's quite a foolish argument, really, because people in small towns know what's happening in big cities. They have been to big cities. They consume all of the media and culture and news that is produced is made in the big cities. Mm-hmm. Um, people in big cities, on the other hand, tend not to consume the Des Moines Register, for example. Uh, they tend not to watch uh, local news from Omaha, etc. So what I've realized about the media environment is that in a way, in a very specific way, I'm not making a broad generalization here, but in a way, people in smaller places will be better informed and have more exposure to a wider media diet than people in bigger cities. I'll give you an analogy for this, or a, a sort of a counterpart to this. Growing up in India, um, I, like most Indians my age, or indeed um, Nigerians, Moroccans, whatever, uh, I consumed a lot of American popular culture. I, I watched American television shows, American movies. I read American books. Um, when I moved to Europe about 10 years ago, I had friends from all over the world. And we shared this in common because in a way, we're all Americans. All of us around the world grew up with American popular culture. Similarly, across America, people grew up and continue to consume um, stuff from the coasts. And the flip side is just as People in big cities don't know what's happening elsewhere. It's, Americans don't know anything about Indian movies no. or Egyptian yeah. pop music or Chinese art. Um, and that's why that, that's what I mean by giving me a more nuanced idea of how media works in places that aren't New York or London. Well, the, the last election, I think, um, should have been a wake-up call to American big city media because they, they truly – did not cover or at least underestimated the angst and the anger of the the people in the in the heartland uh, and uh, it was this great shock and 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 great surprise those of us living here it wasn't such a a mm. a, a, a great surprise i mean the the extent of it Perhaps, but the fact that it was there, and people felt uh, disenfranchised, and they were unemployed, and they they were uh, not part of the economic boom, uh, that that was readily ap- apparent. But it was missed by the coastal mm-hmm. uh, um, media, and and uh, it's like it's like that we out here in the heartland are the great unwashed <laughs> and. <laughs> unintellectual. <laughs> you can't be intellectual if you live in a small town, right? I mean, that's the that's the ridiculous mm-hmm. uh, argument that often is, if not made, it's implied. Implied, right? So, all of this, do you 
write about it? Have you written about it? Are you going to write about it? Or are you just absorbing all of this? So for the moment I'm observing, um, when I get back to London in a couple of weeks, I will write a number of stories, not on this particular thing. I have various stories I plan to write, um, some rather wonky topics. Uh, But I would say that this is not just an American problem. This uh, concentration of media in the big cities and therefore missing out on a sort of for want of a better word, popular sentiment. I mean, we saw it uh, half a year before the U.S. election. We saw it in Britain. Brexit Brexit, shocked all of us. There was not an inkling in London that that could even possibly happen. And to be fair, even the people campaigning for leave were surprised that they won. Um, I think you're right that it is definitely a wake-up call for media, for the academy, um, for policymakers, that all of us are culpable and need to pay more attention to what's happening elsewhere. Um, I don't necessarily agree, however, that it is simply a function of anger at the establishment or simply a function of feeling condescended to. I think Brexit, um, the US uh, presidential election, as well as several other uh, political events over the course of the past two years across the world are part of a much broader, greater, and this is, I mean, across the world, not just in the West, much broader um, shift in society. What's happened over the past 10 years is not just that there's been a lot of change, but that the rate of change has accelerated dramatically. Um, The transmission of information is faster than it's ever been before. And obviously it's true every day that it's faster than it's ever been before. But what smartphones have done and what connectivity has done over the past decade has been truly transformational on a scale not seen since the printing press. And the printing press took number of decades to proliferate right. around the world. Um, and what tends to happen is that, you know, change is unsettling. Nobody likes change. Societies like change even less than individuals like change. But change can be adapted to. What is, what causes these sort of deep disruptions in civilization, in society, in history, is when the rate of change is so rapid that nobody has a chance to get a, set, to get a handle on what's going on. And I think that is, again, just one part of of what we're seeing around the world. So it's not, I wouldn't say it's just anger or just worries or economic uh, issues, although those are all important. I'd say there's, there's a whole host of factors, to all of which I would add. On this trip, I have gone out of my way to not bring up myself, to not talk to people about politics. I have talked to people about a hundred different things, but I leave it to them to bring it up with me if they want to, which very often they do. And I believe that many of these other subjects that I touch upon, in a way, are still about this main subject, about what is happening in this country, why are people feeling the way they do, and so on. But I think going to somebody and saying, you know, why did you vote for this guy, or why did you not vote for this guy, um is not very helpful. And in fact, it's kind of counterproductive because it puts them on the defensive. Summarizing 
what you've been saying is uh, it, the word disruption come, <laughs> comes to mind, that, that technology certainly has aided our ability to communicate among a million other things. But it's also disruptive. And this disruption causes angst as well as the other things that mm-hmm. we've talked about. Is that, is that your, your point uh, in part? I wouldn't use the word angst. I mean, I agree with you, but the word I would use is um, unsettlement, okay. confusion, uh, a sense that you have no control. And when people feel like they don't have any control over their own lives, their economic destinies, over just understanding what is happening in the world, I think that is when people act out in these ways. I I feel like I don't feel like I'm out of control, but I have to admit that even as much as I keep up, I feel constantly behind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I live with the fear that I'm going to miss something that didn't exist probably 10 years ago. Yeah. We didn't know as much about what was going on first of all, but it is it is overwhelming. I mean, my job in my day-to-day life back in London, my job is to keep up with the news. Uh, I get paid to do this, you know, in the working day, unlike most people who do it in the evenings in their spare time. Even I can barely keep up with everything that's happening in the world. There's just, there's a deluge. And part of the reason for that is that we are now exposed to so much more information, to so much more media than we ever have been before, that it is, unfortunately incumbent on us to, whereas at one point we would have to seek out information, now it is incumbent on us to exclude information, to try and focus and make sense of the things that really concern us without getting distracted. To curate, to curate to to a point where we weed out the distractions. Exactly, but to do it purposefully, deliberately, and not allow algorithms to do it for us. Because when we allow algorithms to do it for us, the incentives are not aligned. What what makes me happy and what I am interested in, um, what I find fulfilling, <coughs> is different from what might drive the business model of a platform and therefore what the platform is interested in showing me in order to keep my attention. And... <coughs> sorry. No, no problem. Because like all human beings, I'm distracted by shiny things and fun <laughs> things, I end up spending my time doing that and not feeling very good about it. It's kind of like reaching out for a bag of chips when you know you should wait till you get home and eat eat a good solid dinner. Um, and the fact is, all of us, I mean, me personally, the things I'm interested in uh, in my spare time tend to have to do with literature or art. I like I like reading books. I like going to galleries. I like reading books about going to galleries, that sort of thing. Um, I find that deeply, deeply enriching. And other people have different things. It could be sports, it could be whatever, military history. But all of us are getting distracted by things that we don't actually find that interesting, but are just there. Um, I feel like we've come away from the control aspect of it, but it is actually part of that. Where Again, we're not, we're not entirely in control of our own media consumption, just as we're not entirely in control, or we feel like we're not entirely in control of our economic and political futures. And so, this is not a, I mean, it's not an easy thing to do, but as a result, we as individuals are now forced 
to exercise much more discretion, much more caution in what we do, what we consume, how we spend our time. And that is one way, I think, of feeling some control in terms of media, not in terms of the other stuff we were talking about. The other day it was, uh, and I followed the news constantly in in my job to to try to keep up, especially American politics. But in in doing that, uh, the other day about 2 o'clock, I noticed in the afternoon that nothing much had happened that day. And I, I, I really tuned in to what I was feeling. I started being anxious hmm. because I was expecting something. I felt like Pavlov's dog. I, I was conditioned to expect something. And when there wasn't anything there, then I thought, oh, this is bad. You know, instead of saying, okay, let's take a breath, you know, it, it, it was – it was stark to me how conditioned I was to the rapidity mm-hmm. of uh, information and an instant analysis that we do in our head. Is this important? Can I – is this – should I share this? No, mm-hmm. I shouldn't share this. All of those th- factors were going on at, at, at the same time. D- do you ever just tune out and turn everything off? I certainly do. Um, when I go on holiday – so I can't in my day-to-day life, as I say, this right. is my job. But And I can't even when I go home in the evening. Uh, a journalist's life does not end when you leave the office. Journalist's work, rather. Um, but when I go on holiday, uh, I do the following things. I turn off my email alerts. I delete Twitter. Um, and I try and focus on being where I am rather than... This is... One of the problems with having constant, with having constant access to everything is that, as you said earlier, you always feel like you're missing something. And secondly, you always feel the urge to check in, to dip in and out of the stream, as they say. Um, so yes, I most certainly do. I don't, I'm not one of those people who advocates sort of data, sort of rather digital cleansing or sort of <laughs> extreme positions of like deleting everything. Right. Um, but the thing is, I mean, the broader point here is that it goes back to the rate of change. I think all of us have sort of just gone with the flow over the past several years and just enjoyed enjoyed a lot of this stuff. And I think now, at this particular moment in history, all of us as as societies, as individuals, and this again is happening in not all of, but many parts of the world, are beginning to reconsider all of these things and are beginning to take stock of what we're doing. I think I think society as a whole is beginning to say, well, that was great fun, but is that really what I want? And can I change things around to make myself happier? Um, and I think it's a process. I think... And you know, I'm 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 hardly um, reaching retirement age, but <laughs> no, you aren't. But uh, I do think that the next generation will be way way better prepared and way better equipped to deal with all of this, having grown up in a very different media environment. Um, I think people who were born in this century, especially, will have a completely different relationship with media, with news, with technology, with communication, uh, than even somebody who's now 25. I, I agree with you and I, I, on that, but I have some concerns because my concerns are, 
and you see this with young children, toddlers, uh, very young children, uh, the reliance on media, media is constant stimuli uh, to the point where they really don't have a choice of turning off. Uh, they do, but they, they, they don't because they're conditioned. They learn differently. They see things differently. Um, and I don't know where that will go. That, that caused me, causes me some apprehension. Mm, I wouldn't be too pessimistic. I mean, you use the word differently, and I agree with you. They will learn differently and engage differently, but different doesn't necessarily mean worse. No. It doesn't necessarily no. mean better. Besides which, people have been complaining about new technologies forever. The printing <laughs> press was going to ruin everything. I, who Fire. Was Fire ruined everything. Right? The wheel. I mean, who needed the wheel anyway? Uh, who was it? I think, um, was it... Uh, Plato, I think, quoting Socrates or the other, somebody, Aristotle, I don't know, one of the Greeks complaining, no, writing that one of the other Greeks uh, said that the invention of writing was terrible because it would atrophy people's memories and now they could just <laughs> write things down, wouldn't have to remember anything. Um, so, you know, we're, we're always going to worry about things that are new. Um, and I agree that younger people, especially people who grow up with, uh, like a the age of one and two start having iPads and engaging with them, um, will grow up in a very, very different media environment with a very different way of learning. But that's a good thing because these things are not going anywhere. Our phones are not going anywhere. Our iPads are not going anywhere. And newer and newer things are going to come. And I think younger people will be better equipped to understand how they're being manipulated than a lot of us are because we have different expectations for how media treats us. Um, and they will have grown up in an environment where they know not everything is as it used to be in our day. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other, bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands, and this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud, to make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. When I was young, uh, it, we lived in a world of media's monologue. Uh, media companies told us mm -hmm. things and we either accepted them or turned the channel, but that was, that was it. Now I think we're in an era of media's conversation. We talk about 
everything. Mm -hmm. We talk to everybody about everything. I, I anticipate if I were planning ahead that the generation that you were just talking about will demand media as experience whether it's through VR or an iteration of that or, or different forms of AI, it, it's going to be experiential. Uh, it's not going to be good enough to just watch the news or read the news or listen uh, to a podcast. Somehow there's going to have to be an experience factor in there. Now, that's just my opinion of where we're headed, but I don't know. And I'm sure you don't know either. I haven't a clue. Um, having said which, I mean, you may be perfectly right. You may be entirely wrong. I have no idea. Um, what I do know for certain is that while there may be very many new things, new ways to engage with media, the old ones are not going away. We still have radio. We still have newspapers and magazines. We still have television. Um, New you still forms. read books? We still read books, exactly. Yeah. Uh, we still go and look at art. We all take a million photos and stick them on Instagram or whatever, but we still go and look at exhibitions and people still use paint and charcoal and all of these things. Um, and we still derive pleasure from this. We, we, you know, we, we find it fulfilling. Um, equally, all of us, you, me, we, we use the new forms of media. So... Whatever happens in the next two years, five years, ten years, fifty years, will be new forms rather than new forms that add to the wealth of the of media diversity rather than replacing existent forms of media. I believe you being a, a person who likes art, um, I haven't figured this out quite yet. Uh, my wife and I about a year ago. Uh, we were at the Museum of Modern Art in, in New York, and, and uh, we were looking at the, the picture Starry Night, and uh, we were wondering at uh, the complexity of it that uh, was greater in person than I've ever seen in any picture of it, and, and looking, looking at some of the technique and the thickness and all of those things. Other people, mostly young people, and I'm, I'm not being critical, it was just an observation, walked up to the painting and took a picture of it or took a video of it. Now, that's going to be their experience <laughs> with that, and it's going to be a technological mm -hmm. experience as opposed to a visual uh, in-person kind of experience. And I thought, that that's amazing. Uh, you know, it's just a different way of approaching the the same thing. Mm -hmm. We were all looking at the same picture that's had, <clears throat> excuse me, that's had historical significance for gen, you know decades and, and centuries. Mm -hmm. it, it was just an interesting difference in how people approach things. Yes, it is different, but that's I think all it is. And so long as they're not sort of preventing you from appreciating it no. in the fashion that you want to. No. You know, to each their own. I saw, see that you reported on technology and you also reported on pop culture. Mm -hmm. I was interested in knowing before talking with you, 
Was there a connection between the two, or were they totally different in how you approached things, or did you see a symbiosis of them? Uh, they were they were linear rather than simultaneous. Those two uh, reporting uh, experiences. experiences, right? Um, and both were products of circumstance rather than any sort of uh, carefully thought out plan. <laughs> um, so I used to be a film journalist in Bombay where I grew up and where the Indian film industry is based. Um, hugely enjoyable. And once I moved to Britain and started working there, um, I ended up writing about technology for... I mean, it just seemed it's it. It was something that interested me. It seemed um, an area in which there was a lot of work. Uh, that's always a good reason to do anything. <laughs> I think Absolutely. being able to get employed. Um, and at the time that I started, it was it was still sort of slightly outside. Um, I mean, it was a bit transformative, but it was seen as one industry that you wrote about it hadn't yet and that's i would date my writing about technology to about 2011 2012 okay um it still had not been widely accepted as something that is that touches everything that is that that infiltrates every aspect of our lives that is inescapable so today i think to say you're a technology writer doesn't actually make any sense because you could mean that you write about electronic circuitry and microchips, um, which is what it actually means now, I think, if you take it as a separate thing. But otherwise, you could be writing about culture, you could be writing about politics, media, international uh, international affairs. You could be writing about anything when you say you're writing about technology. This is the second time you've worked for The Economist, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. But, but now you're a news editor, and this is certainly a world-respected publication, uh, sort of stodgy in, in its perception, mm-hmm. uh, but certainly uh, uh, at the top of the reputation list. What do you do there? <laughs> um, so as news editor, I'm responsible for our day-to-day news coverage. Um, we publish a weekly print magazine. Right. Um, annoyingly, News tends to happen on a daily basis rather than <laughs> rather than just coming at once for us to put it in this in this nice print package and equally annoyingly, people tend to have this expectation that as a news organization, we will respond to the news. so my job is to oversee what we do on a day to day basis um, a lot of what we publish in the week during the course of the week will end up in print in some form. Sometimes it'll be the same piece uh, because it's ready early and it's and it's germane. For example, yesterday we published online a piece about the Facebook Zuckerberg hearings, um, which will be in the print edition, which will come out tomorrow and then last the rest of the week. But obviously it made sense to publish that yesterday because it was ready and that was the news. Um, other times something will happen. We will write a piece online and that will form the foundation for a larger piece or a updated piece that goes into print late in the week. Sometimes it's entirely independent. You know, there's a lot of news that happens in the world and you can't fit that in 100 pages. Um, So there are pieces that are only online. That is the distinction. However, there is 
next to no distinction that we make in the quality of the editorial processes of the pieces we publish online and the ones we publish in print. Um, both have both types of pieces have numerous sets of editors' eyes upon them, and to say nothing of editors' red pens. Um, <laughs> and both have to be of a certain quality to to actually be published. Readers make no distinction between something that they read um, that is supposedly online only and something that is in print. For a reader, a piece published by The Economist is a piece published by The Economist and needs to adhere to a certain standard. So just as in print, as you will know, pieces are spiked, equally online pieces are spiked because, you know, they and it's not very, not very frequent. We tend to have very good journalists and we don't have to spike pieces very often, but we will. the only difference is we will not spike for reasons of space because there's unlimited space on the internet, but Absolutely. we will spike for reasons of quality. It's not a place where you just put stuff. And at one point it was, not necessarily with The Economist, but certainly with news as it was evolving to online. Exactly. And, and I remember the day, and sometimes it seems like yesterday, and sometimes it seems like a century ago, where you would just take the print edition and reproduce it mm -hmm. on, online. And, of course, that's not the case at, at, at all anymore. You just have to sort of go with the flow. I mean, not go with the flow, but move with the times rather. So what's in your future? What uh, You're obviously an educated young man, well-traveled, uh, schooled. What, do you want to do this forever? Do you want – do you have a plan? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean I can think of – sorry. I can think of no better job in the world than being a journalist. It's like getting paid to learn new things every day and travel and meet interesting people. Um, and and astonishingly, at the end of the month, somebody pays you for that. It's it's amazing. <laughs> it's it's a license to have a great time and you know indulge your hobbies and follow your interests. I mean, what what could possibly be better? Well, I, I happen to agree. So, <laughs> good luck with the rest of your journey uh, you, here, and good luck uh, when you go home. Well, thank you for having me. Today, we've been talking with Leo Marani. He's the news editor of The Economist in London. We talked about his study of American small towns and small cities. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's Hudson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.